Don't worry, Drogon. I'll kill your cat for you. Good. Kill it, bury it, and bring me its tail so I can throw it in the fire and watch it burn. This is Attack of the 20th Century. Thank you for joining us as we explore science fiction, fantasy, and horror films of the 20th century. I'm your host, Jeff. And I'm your other host, Kim. Welcome to episode 30, where we review Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, from the year 1990. Look for us on Instagram and Facebook at Attack of the 20th Century, that's 20TH. We post our next movie selection there, you can comment, give your thoughts, and they just might make it on the air. All right, Hanshaw, what's new? What's new? Well, my brother's about to get married in about three weeks. That's right. So we, I don't know. We've been hanging out a little more in preparation. We had sort of a bachelor hangout yesterday. Mm-hmm. First, we went skeet shooting. Fun. And yeah, my shoulder's killing me. If you shoot a 12-gauge <laughs> shotgun 50 times. <laughs> you pay for it. You the, pay for it. <laughs> in the days following. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. So we did some shooting. We went out to dinner. And then we came back. Uh, here, mm-hmm. and watched Army of Darkness. That's an old I, favorite, right? What I didn't tell you is last week, we watched Evil Dead 2 together. It was his first, first time seeing that film. Oh. And then Army of Darkness is unofficially called Evil Dead 3. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So we grew up really big on Army of Darkness and just enjoying that Bruce Campbell, those one-liners. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ones that I've recited to you several times, right? Many a time. In fact, I was kind of doing Easter preparations in the kitchen while you guys were watching that movie, and I commented more than once, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard Jeff Hanshaw say those words to me, I would be a very wealthy woman. Groovy. Yeah. Give me some sugar, baby. Exactly. You're good. (laughs) Yeah. And we let, uh, maybe we're terrible parents. I let our, uh, our 10 year old, <laughs> a 14 year old and 60 year old watch Evil Dead 2 with us, uh, which is a little more horror, but they still have some of those one liners. Right. And then Army of Darkness, you know, Jefferson brought this up, our oldest, that this is like the Three Stooges. It really, yeah, a lot of the comedy, it's very physical, very slapstick. It is very Stooge-like. Yes. <laughs> That's a good point. I did manage to finish the most recent season of The Great British Bake Off, so oh. I'm happy that I'm 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 happy and I'm sad. I'm happy that I'm caught up to mm-hmm. the rest of the world, but I'm sad now that I think I have to wait till maybe September, October to get the next season because I do love that show. The Brits know how to make a reality show. Yeah. Like those people end up loving each other even though they're in competition yeah. with each other. Like, they're just friendly and nice, and they build each other up, and I don't know. That sounds really pie in the sky, but it's just a fun, light show to watch. Yeah. I enjoy that the show has a lot of positivity, contestants encouraging one another, uh, as opposed to a lot of the American reality shows where the contestants tear each other down. Oh, we're like at each other's throats all the time. Yeah. Like, how many memes are there of, like, reality stars screaming and crying in someone else's face, you know? And then there's a smug cat off to the side, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I think, I don't know. the, I, And I can't, I shouldn't be making such a general statement because I literally don't watch any other British reality shows. So maybe the rest of them are just as garbage as American sure. reality shows. I have no idea. Yeah. But if I were an alien that just dropped here from outer space and only saw the Great British Bake Off and then saw, I don't know, The Bachelor or something. Right. I would think these were two different types of humanity living very separate lives. (laughs) Two different species. Spare the Brits, destroy the Americans. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) One is trash and one is good. (laughs) Now, if they watch Gordon Ramsay, then that may be a different But I think he's an Americanized Brit, right? Maybe so. I feel like we've used his anger to really be an American. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Does he have shows like Hell's Kitchen in... Uh, the UK or is that totally an American creation? I have no idea. I have no idea. He's a very angry man. So I don't think we're too unlike others though, because we kind of knock on ourselves for being behind the times. Right. But apparently most people do this with podcasts too, because we've done a little research since we have a podcast that people like to binge watch or binge listen in the podcast. Oh. So they don't like waiting. So now you're having to wait and now you're going to have to watch this show once a week and remember like, oh, I got to catch it. It's Wednesday at three. You know, whatever. Those must be people that that. plan their lives better than I do. Because I'm thankful when I can't binge watch something. Because I mean, it's not saying that I wouldn't binge watch something if or listen to something if I could. Um, I just don't. I don't have that kind of time in my schedule. What do you mean, though? You binge watched the Great British Baking Show. Well, yeah, but not all in one sitting. Like when oh, I think yeah. of binge watching, you're like you're sitting down for a Saturday and a Sunday, and you're just knocking a whole season out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like I've, you know, I've watched an episode. Watching That's my downtime. Yeah. You know, like after a long day, we're about to, kids are about to go to bed or something. Like I'll, I'll catch. I usually don't even finish a whole episode in a night. We'll like watch the signature and the technical bake, and then I'll I'll save the showstopper for the next oh, time I, I get a chance to sit down and watch an episode. Yeah, because they're kind of lengthy episodes. Right. So I don't I don't know I'm not. I don't think I'm a typical binge watcher. So I'm the same with podcasts. Like I'm happy that your next podcast, I'm not saying you like you, Jeff Hanshaw, but (laughs) like whoever I'm listening to at the moment, I'm glad that their next one doesn't come out for a week or so because I need that time to like do other life things, you know? (laughs) Oh, one other thing I did watch. So we have Shudder. It's the horror streaming service. Right. They just released Halloween 3. Oh. And I did watch that, and I thought, you know, this is something I think you might actually Do you like. live in my house? When did you watch that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was one of the times you guys were busy. You guys oh, were out. Yeah, that happens a lot. But the premise behind it is more science fiction horror, oh. and there's no Michael Myers. It's oh. the only one of all the Halloween films that don't have Michael Myers. Interesting. It's not a typical slasher film. Huh. So what was really cool about it was John Carpenter did the first one, and then he produced the second one uh-huh. and said, you know what? I've told the story of Michael Myers. I have a new idea. Every year we're going to release a new Halloween themed film. Okay. But they're not going to be in the same universe. They're going to be just isolated stories. Oh, so it really has nothing to do with Michael Myers at all. Not at all. Oh. But hmm. guess what? He released the film and people were upset. There's no Michael Myers. <laughs> He's <laughs> so, like, people, I have an idea. Go with it. Yeah. So uh, Halloween 4 was called The Return of Michael Myers. That is where the masses cripple artistic integrity, right? Yes. Or ingenuity. Uh, yeah. The people want what they want. Right. The thing that I thought was unfortunate, because it was called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Huh. Like, if they had released it as Season of the Witch, they just uh, once a year. Like, if they did what he wanted to do and just didn't call it Didn't put Halloween, Halloween in the title. Yeah. It comes with less expectations. Yeah. 
That makes sense. I guess it's kind of a pros and cons thing because then you don't get the name recognition or the brand Halloween. Sure. People are just going to go out and see it because it's called Halloween. Yeah. But then they're going to be mad because it wasn't Halloween. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a catch-22 maybe. Catch I don't 22. know. Hmm. Interesting. So in a moment, we're going to talk about Tales from the Dark Side, but this is the second anthology film that we have done this year, and the third one overall since we started reviewing films. The others we've done are Black Sabbath and Twice Told Tales. Mm -hmm. So anthology films are basically a film that has several short films within that film. Sometimes they'll have different directors, other times it's the same director, maybe different cast members. Right. But what I like about anthology films is there's always hope. So you have your first story, and you're always wondering, what's the next story going to be like? Mm -hmm. Typically, the second story is a little weaker than the first, mm -hmm. but there's hope that maybe that third one is even better. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about it, too, it's a way to cram in multiple ideas into one film. Yeah. So in an hour and a half sitting, you can actually listen to three different pretty cool ideas. Or maybe two of the three. It's kind of like watching an extended cut of like a Twilight Zone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're getting three stories crammed into one thing. Very much so. And this really relates to how I read literature too. You know, I'm a big Ray Bradbury fan and mm -hmm. my favorite stories are usually short stories. That's true. Because what I really like are the ideas that are thrown out there. When I read a story like The Illustrated Man, Ray Bradbury has, I don't know, 12, 15 awesome ideas that he throws sure, out there yeah. and they don't have to be so well developed as in a typical novel right or in a movie situation you know you don't have to entertain me for 90 to 120 minutes right with one idea but you can have several ideas you can throw out there so I, I don't know there's something about the anthology that i really enjoy i think too they just jump right in a lot of cases right you don't have a lot of exposition or a lot of just you know nonsense they've got to just tell the story because they're yeah. on a time budget and i i think probably you and i the fact that we enjoy discussing these things back and forth i think we enjoy the anthology aspect because it leaves that door open for discussion more mm -hmm. like somebody hasn't painted all over the question right yeah. like they've kind of posed the question posed the idea and then left it open-ended so there's lots of room for discussion and conversation yeah. about it whereas if you you know if you've spent 120 minutes or whatever on something mm -hmm. they've kind of opened and shut the case for you yeah. like they've clearly put their stamp on whatever they want you to take away from it right instead of just saying like here's a thought what do you think about it you know mm -hmm. kind of planting the seed and then leaving you to take it where you want to yeah yeah there's there's two different approaches that i think we both enjoy so for instance lord of the rings goes in the opposite extreme <laughs> right they paint every detail that they want you to know of all the setup. True. They go through every, you know, adventure is in full detail. Mm -hmm. There's really not for you to much for you to imagine because you're seeing it unfold before your very eyes. It's very true. Whereas the anthology film is the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's more of here are suggestions, read into it what you will. Mm -hmm. But you only have 20, 30 minutes to figure this out because this is where we're going. Right. This is as far as we're taking it. The rest is up to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Like, I like both. Right. They serve different purposes. Very different purposes. Right. 
So some of the famous ones out there, Tales of Terror with Vincent Price, 1962. Mm-hmm. That was the year before, I believe, I have to double check that, but Twice Told Tales. So it's right in that same timeline. Right. Then Twilight Zone, the movie, 1983. That was another one. I saw this one as a kid. And that's another one we'll have to review sometime. But mm-hmm. I had this recurring nightmare. Yeah, I did too. Same Gremlin same on the wing. Yes. That messed up my mind pretty I good. imagine we're not alone in that because we're in the same, you know, age, age bracket, bracket. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in our age bracket that also had recurring nightmares. And I didn't see the Shatner version until much later. Really? Because this, you know, 1983 was when we were very, very young. We were young, yeah. And I'm sure we watched it I as a... I was younger than you. Yes, you were. <laughs> so we both had to watch it as a rerun on TV. I'm sure, yeah, I saw it later. Or VHS. I'm or sure something. I didn't see it as a five-year-old. No. Uh, Cat's Eye, 1985, is another one. Okay, so I still have thoughts about this. This one, again, recurring nightmare material, but I only remember... I know it's an anthology, mm-hmm. because every time... I look it up. I see that it's an anthology. And I even just recently went through and kind of read the plot from Wikipedia or somewhere. I have no recollection of the other two stories from this trilogy. Uh-huh. But the one that has Drew Barrymore, and there's like a troll living in her house, and her family thinks the cat... They, I think she finds a stray cat or something. Yeah. And the parents distrust the cat. They think, you know, there's that like old wives' tale, like cats stealing baby's breath, yeah. and, like suffocating you in your sleep, something right. crazy. Um, they kind of have that mentality about the cat and they think the cat's like trying to suffocate Drew Barrymore in her sleep, Uh but there's this like evil little troll thing living in her wall. That's like going to come and kill her in her sleep or something. The troll is actually like sucking her breath out or trying to, and the cat saves Drew Barrymore. I'm probably spoiling this. We may want to cover this later, but whatever. (laughs) I have very vivid recollections of that short story, but none of the other anthology. So I don't know. I think it used to run on HBO. Yeah. It was at some point when my dad wasn't mad at the cable company. I definitely saw it on cable though. Okay. It was definitely on cable when I was growing up Yeah, Somewhere I saw it. I saw it too. And that's what I remember too. I don't remember any of the other stories, just the Drew Barrymore. Yeah, portion. well, I just looked up the other two stories recently and they're pretty dark and I uh, have no recollection of those. So somehow uh, I was allowed to watch or able to see the Drew Barrymore portion with the little troll in the wall. <laughs> and I did have recurring nightmares about a stupid troll living in my wall, yeah, like sneaking out and trying to get me in the night. One of the very few stories where the cat is the hero of the film. Yes, the cat is the hero. Maybe Typically that's why I like cats kinda... now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're going to see a different kind of cat in a minute when yeah. we talk about our movie of the week. True, true. So going in a completely different direction, everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, 1972. Oh that's a Woody Allen film. Yes. And, you know, I'm a much bigger Woody Allen fan than you are. I think, <laughs> I think in general... We are probably in the minority because uh, we've really, you know, stood up for Woody Allen several times. Like his philosophies and everything, maybe right. wacko or cuckoo, but I really like that he challenges you to think. He does want you to think. He is very much canceled in the rest of the world, so yes. we are definitely in the minority there. But he thinks outside the box. Uh, Fantasia, nineteen forty. That's one I hadn't thought of. Uh, but yeah, it's a, a series oh, of short like stories. Disney Fantasia. Yeah. We're talking about legit. Okay. Yeah. I never thought about that as being an anthology, but it totally is. Right. You know, they redid Fantasia later. 2000, I think. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that one. Uh, French Dispatch. We talked about that not too long ago. You and That's I saw right. that in the theater. We saw that. 
and Trick or Treat 2007. So that's one we'll have to watch. That's a classic. Really? Like a new classic anthology film. I don't know that one. And then, of course, Creep Show and Creep Show 2. Those are anthology films. And we'll talk a little more about Creep Show because in the underworld, (laughs) let's say, Tales from the Dark Side is called Creep Show 3. Oh, really? Even though there was an official Creep Show 3, which uh, had a different staff altogether. (laughs) Is that our son (laughs) playing basketball? Yeah, our son is playing basketball right outside our door. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you can hear that or not. Well, remind us what we watched this week. Okay, this week we have watched Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. It's from Mm. 1990. It is rated R for gore and some language. Um, It's a comedy horror anthology, obviously, because we've been talking about anthologies. And I will say, this doesn't always happen, but on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a almost tied score between the critics and the viewers. Okay. But it's not great. It's 43% and 44%. So, <laughs> you know. A little the critics and the average Joe agree on this. It's a meh kind yeah. of thing. Okay. All right. So the cool thing about this anthology is it's all kind of wrapped up with a neat little bow by this wraparound story, I guess mm-hmm. is what we're going to call it. Yep. So we open with um, this framing story where Deborah Harry of Blondie fame Uh is playing, I believe her name is Betty. She's basically a modern, uh, suburban housewife. I say modern from 1990. So yeah, it's a few years back. Um, but she's looks to be a suburban housewife, but really she's a modern version of kind of the Hansel Gretel style, witch, right? So she actually has a young boy trapped in her behind a door inside Mm -hmm. of a cage in her kitchen, um, named Timmy. So, boy in the cage, in the kitchen, and guess what she's doing? She's fattening him up because she's going to serve him as dinner to her uh, dinner party guests that seem to be coming later that evening. We kind of find out through her conversations. Yeah. So, uh, Timmy, the young boy, tries to stall his impending doom by recounting some scary stories to the witch, Betty, Mm -hmm. from her own favorite, it sounded like her own favorite childhood book. Yes. Which... Dun, 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 title drop is called Tales, Tales from, from the, the Dark, Dark Side. Side. Yes. So with each tale, the, you know, I, I was going to say the scene cuts from Betty and Timmy to the story he's telling, but it's literally a screen swipe. <laughs> yeah, it is. So we screen swipe into each tale as Timmy tells them to Betty to try and keep her occupied and distracted from getting him out of the cage and into the oven. Yes. Definitely yeah. a stall tactic. It's a stall tactic, and it's pretty effective because we see between each of the three stories that he tells, we cut back to the kitchen with Betty and Timmy, and he's keeping her going. You know, he's mm-hmm. he he has her going. He's like, wait, wait, wait. There's an even better story. Let me tell you this story. <laughs> so his tactics are working, um, but then after the third tale is told. It seems like Timmy's run out of time and run out of luck, and blonde Betty is about to stuff him and roast him. Okay. But Timmy has his own tale to tell, and his improvisation is going to prove to save the day, and the tables are going to turn on witch Betty, and she is the one that's going to end up in the oven at the end of it all. (laughs) And let's just back up for just a second, because I did want to go back and tell a little bit of background Stephen King and George Romero teamed up to do the Creepshow films that we talked about, mm-hmm. Creepshows 1 and 2. And they wanted to do a television series. Right. So 
they tried to work out the specifics. The negotiations kind of broke down and they said, you know what? We're going to do what we want to do, but we're going to rebrand it as Tales from the Dark Side, oh. the series. Right. Okay. So they went from the series and then it was, you know, a big enough success that say, they said, hey, we want to do a film. It ran from the late 80s up to 1990, didn't it? Correct. Okay. And so they said, hey, let's do a film. And it was just three years after the Creep Show 2 hit. Which was you okay, know, which was good, uh, but so it's pretty much the same staff that worked on Creep Show one and two, right? So that's why I mentioned earlier it's unofficially considered Creep Show three, huh? Because they're all the same personnel working on this. Uh, they did make the movie for three point five mil, and their box office was sixteen point three mil. Okay, so it was a modest success. Yeah, you know, not pretty shabby. Big hit. And a sequel was planned, but never materialized. So back to this whole Deborah Harry, uh, you know, Matthew Lawrence, Betty and Timmy. To me, I want to, I'm going to just dive right into the standouts if that's cool. Yeah, go for it. Deborah Harry was super convincing as an actress. I believe that too. Yeah, I agree with you there. She, you know, basically was looked at as a, a good citizen you know, you see her interacting with a local preacher, yeah, <laughs> with her neighbors, others around town, and you just think good, kind of a, a yuppie uh, person out there. I don't know if she's a mom. It kind of seems like maybe she's not a mom. I don't know how no, you can have a kid like that. No, we never up. see like a husband or anything like that. But she just looks like a upper class suburbanite, right? Yeah, yeah. But her portrayal as Betty epitomizes dark comedy. So she's drawn into these stories that Timmy tells. And she's admitted that this was her favorite book growing up. Right, exactly. She knows these tales well. Yes. And you can tell she probably doesn't have a whole lot of people reading to her. Right. So this is kind of cool. This kid is reading her stories. Yeah, she's getting sucked in. She's getting sucked in. But she does have a party tonight. And this little boy needs to be cooked. Yeah, you know? he's got to get in the oven. <laughs> so here's just a little example of dialogue I'll read to you. Uh, from the film that I, it's like an example of dark comedy. So Betty says, I never could do long division. Let's see, how many times does 12 go into 75? Timmy says, oh, six times, three left over. Why? Betty says, oh, well, at 12 minutes a pound, that means you have to be in the oven by no later than 1.30. Oh, but evisceration takes at least an hour. <laughs> and she's telling this to the kid that she's going to have to eviscerate right. and cook. Yeah, so and she does have like a table full of really creepy, scary looking medieval, I don't know, like if you were cooking a really big turkey, I guess those are the tools you would need, like a really big turkey, like <laughs> really a 75 tur- pound turkey. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so that's a little creepy, but what I thought, it was almost Johnny Depp-like in uh-huh. this like detachment. She's an evil character. She yeah. wants to cook a child for right. dinner, right? But she's got this quirky effervescent almost quality to her like a little detached a little i mean unhinged clearly if she's gonna eat a kid but in a way that you're kind of like i don't know is she bad yeah i mean clearly she's bad but is she bad yeah she (laughs) seems kind of cool though at the same time yeah just a little aloof and zany yeah i guess so lighter than the average witch in the woods with a candy house right like nicer than that or funner cooler than that and for being a professional singer and to act in this film, I think she's right there with Christian Slater and some of the other top actors that oh, are building sure, this film. Yeah. Like her performance is really convincing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she gets a standout from me. Okay. 
So I will say another standout for me is Timmy. Uh, what's his name? Matthew Lawrence is the actor's name. He does a great job of convincing me of like, he's trying, he's working hard to try and save his own life. Right. Like right. he's, you know, it, is it Oscar worthy? Maybe not, but I, I, he, I think he does a good job of convincing me. Like he does not want to be eating for dinner and he's keeping <laughs> up these stories, you know, with Witch Betty, he does not want to be eaten by Witch Betty. So I, I feel like he does a good job there. Yeah. I liked their interactions. Yeah, their interactions were fun. Yeah. So I agree with you. Jumping into setbacks, you know, for me personally, I did not like the outwitting of Betty. So Timmy seemed to improvise that whole escape. And it was heavily reliant on luck. Betty should have been a little smarter than that. Because Betty (laughs) seems pretty smart. And he's like telling her what she's, you know, what's going to happen to her step by step. Right. Right as he's doing it. And then she just walks right into his trap. And I guess for me personally, how could this have been better? I wish he could have picked up some tips from maybe some of the stories that he told. Because he told us three different stories. Sure. Or even just piggyback off the last story. Like some Mm -hmm. lesson that he incorporates. Maybe he gets this idea and he says, you know what? I'm going to incorporate this into my escape. Right. Because this is a wraparound story. It is. I thought it would be cool if they had done that. But they didn't. You know, he he basically just outwitted her by telling her what he was going to do, and then he defeated her. See, but I that's where I disagree with you. I liked the ending uh-huh. because he's like, wait, wait, let me tell you one more story. And he just starts improvising the story. And he's like, well, and I think he says something to the effect, I wish I'd written down the quote now, but like... Like some stories need a happy ending because all of her stories are obviously dark and grim and they have yes. gruesome endings. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to tell you a story of a happy ending. And he totally improvises his own story. So I kind of mm-hmm. like that because he's, yeah. he's keeping up with the storytelling theme, but he's just doing it on the fly. And he happens to have marbles in his pocket and she opens the cage door and is going in after him. And he's saying, it's almost like um, Greek tragedy to me here uh-huh. because he's telling her explicitly like, this is what I'm about to do. I'm going to throw the marbles on the floor and you're going to trip and fall and land on the cart. And then I'm going to shove you into the oven. And it, it's like her hubris won't let her believe that he's actually doing those things. Right. Like she's so prideful and just like, I'm the witch here. I'm the adult. I'm going to overpower this kid and cook him for dinner (laughs) that she's like, ha ha cute story. She's like ignoring him. Right. Like how many times have we done this as parents where our kids are like, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later we're like, oh my gosh, there's 52 rolls of toilet paper wrapped around the house. Like they weren't joking. Yeah. yeah, Right. Right. Like that's what I felt like it was. He was like, oh, let me improvise my own story. And she's ignoring him. Like he's a dumb kid. Yeah. That's her hubris. She's going to, you know, it's her own pride that's going to okay. trip her up so i actually liked the ending of the wraparound did story. you okay yeah i did i did now i know you like stories that end with you know an upbeat note yeah so did you like that this ended like pretty positively like the good I guy did. Wins? i did because you know the three tales in the middle are all pretty grim and gruesome so it was nice that even though it's still gruesome i mean she gets like she falls on her own i don't know kitchen implements and gets kind of stabbed in literally stabbed in the back and then gets shoved into an oven (laughs) it's still a gruesome ending but it's a fitting demise for a witch that's about about to eat a kid right yeah yeah. (laughs) so (laughs) she gets her comeuppance and i'm all about that okay so yeah i i really i like the wraparound story and i like the way it concluded so (laughs) we differ on opinions there sure (laughs) so the first story that's actual part of our trilogy here is lot 249 
a little background on it. It was actually written by Sherlock Holmes author, Arthur Conan Doyle. So this goes back to 1892 when this was first published. Yeah. And just basically from what I was able to see, it looked like the inspiration for several of the mummy stories that took place after. Yeah, for sure. So they were working with some pretty gold material here. Oh, yeah. And then turned this into just a, a short segment of a film. So tell us a little bit about Lot 249, please. All right. So Lot 249, we start with this graduate student, Edward Bellingham. This is played by a young Steve Buscemi. Uh-huh. And he's basically been framed for theft and cheated out of a badly needed scholarship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Susan and Lee are... are you know, evil henchmen, I guess, here, are bad guys. Uh, they're boyfriend and girlfriend, and they have set up Steve Buscemi's character, Edward, for failure, and basically the rich boyfriend, Lee, is going to get the scholarship. Yeah. Um, so Edward Bellingham's got to seek his revenge, right? So somehow he manages to purchase and reanimate an ancient Egyptian mummy. And now this mummy is basically under his command. So he commands this mummy to gruesomely kill Lee and Susan, uh-huh. but we've got a problem. Susan's brother, Andy, who's played by Christian Slater, is going to force Bellingham to summon the mummy one more time so that he can dismantle the mummy and get rid of it. Because he's yeah. like, dude, you can't go around killing my sister and my best friend with a mummy. Not right. cool, right? So he destroys the mummy, burns it in a fire in front of Bellingham, and you kind of get the gist that, oh, he's about to kill Bellingham too. Uh-huh. But he can't go through with it. Yeah. So Christian Slater is kind of our pseudo good guy here. He cannot go through with killing Bellingham, but he does get Bellingham kicked out of his college program. Right. So Bellingham is not finished with these people yet. So at, at the final, the end of the story, we see Bellingham kind of driving away in a taxi and shame from the college, but he's still able to summon now, not the mummy, but the dead bodies of Susan and Lee, and sends them to surprise Andy in his dorm room for the final revenge. Yes. Yeah, you and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, that in typical stories, the person Mm -hmm. who's evil gets their comeuppance. Right. So in this case, typically, Steve Buscemi's character, Bellingham, would get the comeuppance, because he's the evil guy in this story, right? Well, it's a little twisted. I'm conflicted about the characters in this story, because Susan is played by Julianne Moore. Uh She almost comes across as a sociopath in this story. Like, she's messing with this poor guy who really needs a scholarship just because she can, and she's helping out her boyfriend. Um, And the boyfriend happens to be best friends with her brother, right? And she seems like Nah, she doesn't care. Like, she could ruin yeah. this guy's life and sure. doesn't bother her. And then her boyfriend gets murdered by a reanimated mummy, <laughs> and she's kind of like, eh, Yeah. That's crappy, but. Yeah, she calls oh well. her brother basically with the corpse there. It's like, Hey, do you have a little time? Yeah, like, something bad's minute? happened. You want to come hang out with me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, she has no emotional attachment to anybody. It's yes. a little freaky. <laughs> but I wouldn't say it's bad acting. Because that could be like considered like wooden acting, right? But it's like she comes across cold. She's very cold on purpose. Yeah. But I see where you're going with this. Andy, played by Christian Slater, also kind of flips, right? So his he does his sister and his best friend are murdered, and now he's going to torture Bellingham mm-hmm. and kind of play with him a little bit. Yeah. And I don't know. To me, it's kind of cool because he becomes. If you remember early on in Christian Slater's career he was compared a lot to jack nicholson oh i didn't realize that 
You kind of see that little flip. Like, he becomes a little mani- yeah. maniac. Well, because the, when the story begins, you feel sympathetic to Christian Slater because he seems like the good guy Link. Between yeah, he is the, the good guy unhinged Link. poor guy who's getting dunked on all the time and his sociopathic sister and her very rich and privileged boyfriend. Yeah. And he's kind of like the good guy who's like, don't mess with Bellingham. He's got it hard enough as it is, but he's still friends with the rich boyfriend. And of course, his sister is a sister. Right. But this then once Bellingham kills them off, he's like, okay, now I have to deal with you. And you're right. There's like a switch that flips and yeah. he's, he's not sad and brokenhearted over the loss of his best friend and his sister. Yeah. But he's like, now I have to deal with you. You're done for, Yeah, you know, but I think he does all the right decisions here. Mm. He disposes of the mummy, right? Which is evil. Right. The mummy's bad news. He thinks he's disposing of the, whatever the, what is that paper called, basically, that has the spell? Uh, yeah, it has the... Um, hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics, or, that's the word I was looking for. So he yeah. disposes of the hieroglyphics. He's wrong, but he thinks he's right. Right. And he basically kicks Bellingham out of town. It says, get out of here. Yeah. You know. You're so, right. So he's like, Bellingham has to pay for this. You can't just murder people and get away f- with it. But right. I also can't murder you. That makes yeah. me just as bad as you. Yeah. So how about I just get you kicked out of college? Right. Right. Yeah, I could see that. So I feel like he made all the right decisions. How? What else would you do? Report it to the authorities? Oh, yeah, which they're going to be like, you're crazy. You're crazy. We'll lock him up. <laughs> so that's why I kind of look at Christian Slater as the good guy in the story. So it's a little weird that he gets you know, murdered at the end. Well, it is, but to me, it's weird when he's destroying the mummy. He's kidnapped Bellingham and tied him up, right? And Uh he's destroying Bellingham's mummy in front of him. And he's a little maniacal about it. Yeah. Like he's kind of, he's not broken hearted about the death of his sister and the death of his best friend. He's like, not like sad, weepy, that kind of revenge. He's like almost gleeful. Like, oh yeah, you can do all this. Watch me destroy your mummy. And I'm going to terrify the crap out of you while I'm doing it. Yeah. He's he's doing crazy Jack Nicholson there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I could, I never knew the Jack Nicholson tie-in, but I could see it there. Yeah, for sure. So let's jump into standouts. I mean, my first standout is Christian Slater. Yeah. He's classic Christian Slater here. You know, he does the most with the material that's given to him. Uh, he's the only one of these that seems like a real college-age kid. <laughs> Everybody else seems like in their 30s. Very true. Julianne Moore <laughs> and the guy who plays her boyfriend are like well beyond. I mean, even if you're in your master's program, you've been there a while. <laughs> right. And then this this menacing uh, part that we're talking about where he's got, I don't know if it's like a turkey cutter or something, some sort of cutting device that looks like what you would use on a turkey. Oh yeah, like an electric knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I, it looks like an electric knife, yeah. You see the mummy coming up behind him and he's playing it cool. It's like he knows the mummy's coming. Yeah, yeah. The mummy did not catch him unawares, which was a cool scene. Saws off his leg, you know, then it ends up sawing off his head. <laughs> yeah, tossing it all in the fireplace. And, you know, I just really appreciated all of that. And I thought, like, it took me back because I really was a Christian Slater fan back in the day. Well, you also kind of looked like Christian Slater back in the day. No, so. that's... <laughs> especially middle school era, I was usually equated to Christian Slater. Yeah. I don't know if it was just hair or facial shape. Yeah, you guys had similar hair. Yeah, I think through the eyes, there's a similarity there. Right, right. I don't look anything like him now. We'll let I, your I adoring public like now, really. <laughs> decide. <laughs> Uh, and then also, I'll just throw out there, Steve Buscemi. He is classic Steve Buscemi in this. Yep. He's he a is. super nerd. He's awkward, kind of this twisted genius. And he just plays this character with ease, right? It just comes natural to him. 
He's got that look, the voice. He looks like a social misfit. Right. That could do terrible, awful things. But at the same time, you know, he's kind of brilliant. And there's something likable a little bit too about him too. The Steve Buscemi we know from, uh, what's the Adam Sandler movie? Uh, Billy Madison. Billy Madison, yeah. It's that Steve Buscemi. And those are like years apart, right? Yeah. Those movies? Several years apart. I would like, I haven't seen Steve Buscemi in a while. I'd like to see what he looks like right now because I feel like he has looked exactly the same for oh. decades now. He's in the new Adam Sandler movie. It's like called Halloween Town or something. Oh, it's you watched Netflix. that with yeah. the kids, didn't you? He looks like Steve Buscemi, just a little bit older. <laughs> Man, that guy, <laughs> I don't know. He's, he's living right or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not like a stunningly beautiful person. No. But he has looked exactly the same for a lot of years. Well, he's a character actor and he yeah. plays that character really well. Yeah, he does. He does. Okay, so a standout for me are the effects in this one. Uh-huh. Um, they're pretty convincing. Like there's nothing, it's it's gory. and But they help us out in the beginning of the story. They tell us, they kind of talk about mummification. Steve Buscemi, when he's explaining why he has this, well, he doesn't really tell them why he has the mummy. Uh-huh. But basically, he's acquired this ancient Egyptian mummy. And he's explaining what the mummifica- mummification process would have looked like. Um, and then we, when the mummy actually like does the first two kills... We see that in like real life, which is pretty gruesome and horrible, yeah. but it's effective. Uh-huh. Like it doesn't, it doesn't look like a hammer horror film where you're seeing, you know, Crayola red colored fake blood. Like yeah. it, it's pretty gory. It's pretty gruesome. Um, but it's done well, you know, mm-hmm. you're not really pulled out of the story by it. So I felt like that was handled really good. Um, and he, the mummy murders Su- or Lee first and then Susan in yeah. the same ways, like you see parts of the mummification process right. that would have happened to him, like pulling the brain through brain the out. nose. Yeah. He stuffed Susan's body full of flowers because they would have stuffed him with flowers and spices yes. and things in the mummification process. So I thought that was kind of a cool, you yeah. know, pulling in the ancient history there. I'm a nerd like that, so I like that sort of thing. <laughs> you like that your killing was historically accurate. Yeah, like if, if you're going to murder somebody, because we know this is not my genre anyhow, uh, uh, at least keep it historically accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're right. The mummy looked pretty convincing. It didn't look silly. Like right. It looked like what you would think maybe a mummy would actually look like. Exactly. It was like dusty and, uh, you know, whatever. But then the m- murders he commits were, I mean, the gore seemed appropriate. Yeah. You know, and it... Uh, you know, I don't love that sort of thing, but it wasn't over the top. It was kind of right on par with, yeah. like, it was just the right amount of gore to yeah. be effective for the story. Yeah. No, I thought it worked re- very well. The effects, nothing took you out of the story, exactly. like you said. Exactly. No, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, one last standout I'll throw out. This looks very much like typical 90s cinematography. Oh. And just nostalgically, like it took me back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It reminded me of kind of that Goosebumps kids TV series. Okay. Just how it looked visually. You know, it was like that macabre feel. But I don't know. There's something about that, that look and the feel. It's very different than Black Sabbath and some of the things we've seen from right. the 60s that were rich in contrast. Mm-hmm. It's kind of had a... It's hard to even you know, specify what it is about it. Right. But when I'm watching it, it was like a time capsule. I got transported back. Does it have a little, almost a little touch of like film noir to it? The yeah. The 90s kind of had that, like right? Like a haziness Yeah, to it. just a little bit of that film noir touch to it. Yeah. I think this one in particular, this short story 
looked more like a 90s film than the other two. So the next okay. two that we'll talk about looked a little more at 1980s, mm-hmm. late 80s. You know, this one definitely had the most modern look of the, you know, yeah. the three Yeah, even though I will say the fashion choices were still like, I was like, ooh, we're still in the 80s here. But I guess it's <laughs> 1990, so give them, grunge has not hit the scene yet. So yes, no, you're they right. They still had some like 80s prep happening they here. They did. <laughs> Especially those tennis outfits. Oh, man. Yes. So when I go to setbacks, I do think it's more of not really a setback. Because I thought Julianne Moore did a good job. But we talked about this earlier. She clearly exhibits these traits of a sociopath. And basically, she's ice cold as a She baddie. is ice cold. Well, I felt like they just didn't utilize that enough. I felt like it was a missed opportunity. Okay. They could have you know, used 10 or 15 more minutes really show her as being evil Mm -hmm. more than just like getting this guy kicked out of school or, you know, using her, uh, allure to try to get him to, you know, be unwise, you know, make bad decisions. I think she could have used that, you know, nasty side a little more and just really like tapped into the evil. Then we would have really wanted that mummy to take her out. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the, you know, that's the downside of having a short story. We didn't see that clear delineation of Christian Slater's character being good Mm-mm. and these other three being bad. Right. And I think we could have used a little more time to develop the story. Yeah. So who's the hero in the story? Is the mummy the hero in the story? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's just a pawn, right? He's just yeah, a he like, really is. chess piece in this whole game. Uh, I think it's got to be Christian Slater. Is it? You know? But they didn't... Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because well, Bashimi turns bad because he, he offs Christian Slater, too. Well, I mean, he offs everybody. Right. So I guess he's bad. Yeah. He's bad. He got wronged, but it's just like, you know, when somebody wrongs you, do Two you kill them? Two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they took your scholarship money. Do you kill somebody that takes your scholarship money? You're right. That's not okay. Yeah. So Bashimi's definitely not a good guy. Julianne Moore definitely shows sides of not being good. No, she's, yeah, I, like, she is unfazed by the gruesome murder of her boyfriend. Yeah. And still is going to go back and like, try and throw Bashimi under the bus. Right? Yeah, she like, was. Oh, yeah. And then the boyfriend is a liar and a cheat. So he's he not good. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, tell us about Cat from Hell. All right. So Cat from Hell, we've got William Hickey playing Drogon. Uh, mm-hmm. William Hickey's a very recognizable guy, right? Right. And we have David Johansson as Halston. What do we know David Johansson from? He was from a band called the New York Dolls. He was also in films like Scrooged. If you remember him, he's oh, like a cab he's driver. He's the cab Scrooge. driver. Yeah. Yes. Kind of like wacky, yeah. crazy. Everybody's a little bit crazy and Scrooged, but. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Cat from Hell is actually a Stephen King short story. Um, We have Drogon, played by William Hickey. As we said, he's a wealthy, like stinking, filthy, rich, wealthy old hermit. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's hiring a hitman, played by David Johansson. Uh, The hitman's name is Halston, to kill his black cat. Mm -hmm. Not like hiring a hitman to kill his... You know, arch nemesis. Yeah, yeah, his arch nemesis or his main business, you know, nemesis. Yeah. Nope, nope, nope. He's hiring him to kill a black cat. So Drogon believes that this dastardly cat has murdered three other people. Three people, the only three people in the world that live with him, actually. Yes. And so he's out, and he thinks the cat is out to get him next. He's yeah. really paranoid that this black cat is coming for him next. Halston, the hitman, 
clearly believes this is a ridiculous, like this old man's probably lost it. He's crazy. But this is going to be the easiest $100,000 he's ever made in his life, right? Yeah. So he's like, sure, old man, go away for the night. Don't worry. I'll kill your cat. <laughs> As we did <laughs> the little quote for it at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Uh, Drogon's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not Drogon, but Halston's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Old man, I'm going to kill your cat. Don't right. worry about it. It's a stupid cat, right? Yeah. Uh, so Drogon leaves for the night, returns to his mansion the next morning to find not one dead cat, but one dead hitman. And the cat explodes from the corpse of the hitman's body <laughs> and causes Drogon to have a fatal heart attack and die. Yes. So well, William Hickey's character is a really bad guy. He's made a fortune in the pharmaceutical industry. And we all know all of those really tests, rich pharmaceutical guys are pure evil. They are really in true life. <laughs> so yeah, good commentary there from these filmmakers. <laughs> but they did, you know... Explained that he killed several cats in the process or experimented on cats. Like 5,000 cats, I think. Yeah, like 5,000 cats were killed in the process of making this drug that's made him filthy, stinking rich. Right. Yeah. So we were just talking about good guy, bad guy. I guess the cat is supposed to somehow be the good guy in this, he's, this yeah, story. Yeah, he's getting the revenge for all the other cats in the world. Right. Uh, and I think I'm not spoiling anything when I say this was by far our least favorite story of the mm-hmm, three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a little tedious. We'll get to setbacks in a minute, but um, let's start with the positives. William Hickey plays Drogon. We know him best as Uncle Lewis in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yes. And uh, he's the voice of Dr. Finkelstein in Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. That voice. Like, once you hear that voice, you'll never forget it. Yeah. Very distinct. I always liked Billy Crystal. He's he's Arthur in Forget Paris. Mm -hmm. He's this old man that reads every sign from any billboard or anything that they're (laughs) driving by. He's like, you asked for it. You got it. Toyota. (laughs) And it kind of drives Billy Crystal's character crazy to hear this old man just read literally everything he sees while he's driving. (laughs) Very good film, actually. Uh, But, you know, he's a character actor. He plays this guy that, you know, he could be smart, mm-hmm. but he definitely, there's a crazy side. I think he's smart, but yeah, his money and his isolation has gotten to him. Yeah, yeah. But I enjoyed him in this. You know, you uh, you definitely, when he's telling the story of the cat, right. you know, you really think like, okay, this guy is crazy, but I could kind of see where he's coming from on this stuff. <laughs> right. Because the cat kills the other three people off in very cat-like ways, right? Like mm-hmm. the old lady trips over the cat in the middle of the night. Well, uh-huh. we have three cats in our own house. What's yeah. the first thing they do every morning? Try and trip us. Yes. That's so that's what they do. believable. Very believable. Like maybe it's just a cat behavior. Maybe this cat's not evil, right? Yeah. And then the second person's bumped off. I don't remember what the cat did. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, one jumped on her face. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the whole, of, like, the cat sucking your breath out at night. Yeah. Cats like to suffocate people in their sleep, right? Yeah. But but they give it away in the story. You yeah, know, we'll, like, well, let's get to set. Let's not go too far into that. All let's right, get, all right, all right. We'll jump into setbacks in a moment. But the, uh, the other thing was use of color, heavy color in this segment, especially when he's telling the story of the past. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like a lot of blues. It looks a little cartoony. Yeah, it's like blues and grays. Everything's real dark. And we even made the comment while watching this, like, turn some lights on. Like, even while Halston the hitman is in the mansion trying to find the cat, like, there's never a light on in the whole stinking mansion. Like, turn a light on. True, true. (laughs) But it adds to that feel. The feel of the whole thing is very dark. Yeah. 
Well, let's roll right into setbacks. You started on it a little bit here, but talk a little bit about... Well, I think the setback here is they gave it away too yeah. soon in this story, right? Yeah. Like, I think there's definitely... You, they should have left the question of, like, did the cat kill these people or did the cat not kill these people? But we get mm-hmm. these flashback scenes where the cat's, like, clearly on... The, now, the first murder... Okay, the cat trips the old lady and she falls down the stairs. Yeah, we have cats. That was debatable. We know that's clearly a plausible situation. Like right. every single morning I step out of my bedroom and there's a cat waiting to trip me because it wants to be fed. Like that's just a cat thing. Yeah. But the second one, like it's like latched onto the lady's face, like you know, like Murdering you see her. starfish yeah. stuck <laughs> to your face in like a, a cartoon yeah. or something. You or know? alien, a face hugger. Yeah, know? a face hugger. Like it, it was just over the top ridiculous. So we're like, okay, clearly the cat has killed this old lady. And then I think it was the butler gets killed in the in the car. The cat's like running crazy around the car at night, yeah. scratching his face and causing him to run in front of a semi or yeah. you know, something. So they give it away too early. That's yeah. that's my biggest setback is like let us still deal with the question like is the cat is this guy crazy or is this cat really like a murderous revengeful cat i agree and they gave it all away way too early well i think it led to the story to become tedious right because we know that the cat is going to kill this guy exactly because the alternative is the hitman shoots the cat kills it and says hey i killed the cat we're all good now (laughs) yeah where's my money i'm out yeah right so yeah, exactly. You have to, something else has to happen or the story's right. just done. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, he's going to kill the cat and we live happily ever after. No, you're like, that's <laughs> not going to happen. So, you know, like, the cat's going to kill this guy and he's probably going to kill the old man in the wheelchair, too. Exactly. So, it made it a little tedious. You know, also, like, the, the visual effects during this segment when they're looking through the cat's, you know, point oh, of yeah, view. we have like cat vision at some points. Yeah. I don't know. It made it unenjoyable, like tedious. Yeah. It just seemed long. It's like, all right, we it was know a what's going to happen. Silly, really. Yeah. Exactly. And I did not like the effects. Yeah. In yeah. this segment. Well, it was, again, it was laughable. I think we were literally yeah. laughing when this cat, like, crawled into the dude's mouth. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, are we going to talk about the cat crawling? Yeah. So at the end, you know, basically what we end up with is a showdown. Halston, the hitman, is locked in this mansion for the night with this cat. And everything that bad could happen is going to happen. Yeah. Right. Halston, you know, and the cat, like there's a crotch bite, right? Like the cat attacks his crotch at some point. Cause we've got to, I guess that was comedic relief. Uh, you know, the cat's scaring the bejeebus out of the guy the whole time. Um, and then the final like epic, like the cat's going to kill the hitman. Uh-huh. He literally crawls into the hitman's mouth and down into his body. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what is happening right now? Yeah. Like, this is so. At least all the other things were kind of an homage to like realistic, weird yeah. cat behaviors. And this was just totally out Ridiculous. of character. I've never seen a cat crawl into the mouth of anything ever. Yeah. <laughs> and well, we have a, a lot of mouth, cats. How could a human mouth open that wide oh, without yeah. tearing the cheek and the. Like, it's another, it just seemed ridiculous. Is that like, okay, this is not my genre, obviously. Is, is there like an absurd horror trope that I'm missing here? Like, is that a thing? Like, we just go real ridiculous with things? Well, I think that's part of the horror comedy. 
Okay. Was but that I, comedic? But it wasn't funny to me. I didn't think it was funny either. It and was I, gross. I think that's why, you know, the 43% Rotten Tomatoes. Right, whatever. right. They missed the mark on that They missed one. the mark on this Okay, one. and you've told me this before. Like, anytime there's an anthology, usually you expect the middle story to be the weakest story, right? Right. Because you kind of start strong and you want to finish strong. Yeah, for sure. So you throw your weaker story in the middle. And I would say that holds true here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So the next one is Lover's Vow. All right, Lover's Vow. So we've got James Remar playing Preston, the artist, the starving yes. artist. Um, Ray Don Chong as Carola, or uh-huh. Carola. It's an yeah. interesting name. Carola. And Robert Klein as Wyatt. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, this is our third and final segment. Preston, like I said, is a struggling artist. Right at the opening of the story, we find out like his paintings or his whatever he makes as an artist, they're not selling. His agent is dropping him because of the lack of sales, and he's really down on his luck. Yeah. And we've already seen that he has a kind of swanky. I don't. Is he in New York? He's in some big city. Yeah. And he has an apartment with a giant skylight. So I don't know any big city. I know that's major retail bucks. Uh-huh. Like or uh, re- not real retail real estate bucks. Um, if you've got a skylight, you're probably paying through the nose for this rent, right? So if he's not selling any paintings, he's in big trouble. So we see him kind of drinking his troubles away at the bar, right? He knows Uh the barman, the guy who, the bar owner, and they're kind of buddies and he's just letting him like drink his sorrows away. Yeah. So at the end of the night, they both are barely like able to stand. They're Uh so wasted. They're walking through an alley. Preston is going to, relieve himself against a wall <laughs> which explains why most alleyways smell like pee i guess yeah um thanks preston yeah thanks preston uh and we have this hideous creature show up first of all the creature's kind of in the shadows but his uh barkeep friend is getting his butt handed to him right yeah. like he's getting it's like swipes off his hand yeah this thing doesn't just like punch him like it rips off an appendage yeah, slices him on the face. Yeah. And then, you know, his friend is like, help me, help me. And then he like, like literally knocks the head off this yeah, guy. Yeah, he's decapitated like in an instant. So Preston thinks, I'm about to die. Like, this is over. This is it. And so this creature has him pinned up in a corner and is about to do away with him. But then, for whatever reason, out of its good graces, says, if you will never speak of this to anyone, like not a mention, not a drawing, not a description, nothing, I'm going to let you go. But you have to vow. You have to swear. You're never going to tell anybody of anything you saw here. And Preston's uh-huh. like, yeah, yeah, no problems. I'm, I'm not speaking a word of this. And the creature lets him go. Uh-huh. Did I mention it's a ridiculously hideous but kind of stupid-looking creature? <laughs> we'll get into that later. All right. So Preston goes about his, you know, he's basically running home at this point because he's terrified. Runs into a girl that seems to be lost and alone and confused about where she is in the city. Takes her home for the evening. Short story is they fall madly in love. We fast forward. They have a family. He, She has helped him. She knows like a person in the art industry gets him the leg up that he needs. He becomes this pseudo famous artist that everybody knows. He's doing very well for himself, yeah, right? right. We, when we fast forward to the future, he's got this loving wife, two beautiful daughters. Um, his agent has taken him back and is now, you know, he's like the golden child of the agency. Right. And he's making good money. And then for whatever reason, Preston decides he needs to tell his wife he has a secret that he's never told anybody and he's got to tell her. Right. So he unveils his secret that one night 
many moons ago, a giant gargoyle thing attacked his friend in an alley and killed him, and he's never told anyone. Yeah. And unfortunately, that was the breaking of the vow that caused the demise of of his entire marriage and his family. Yeah, and his life, really. (laughs) And his life. His whole life ends because he broke the vow that he would never tell of the gargoyle creatures. And we find out, dun-da-da-da, that his wife is the gargoyle. Yes. And now his kids are like gargoyles, too. Gargoyle babies. And she kills him. He's dead. And they move on. Yeah. End of story. End of story. Tragic. So some of the standouts, let's go ahead and jump in. So having the Carola be the gargoyle, I thought was a pretty nice twist. You know, I like that scene where she's like, you promised you'd never tell. Right. And that's the point, like, oh, crap. You know, you are the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly when I was like watching. And you had already seen this before. So I, I had never seen this. And I'm watching it going, oh, man, she's the gargoyle. Yeah. And, you know, you knew there had to be a twist in there somewhere. You guessed it a couple minutes before the reveal. Right. And I guess I'm a little more dense because I thought the gargoyle was just kind of omniscient. And somehow he would see that this guy has broken his vow. Right. It probably would kill his family or something. Well, I will say, when you're reading, I think it's Wikipedia or somewhere I was reading kind of their plot lines for this story. Apparently, in that opening scene of the movie, his skylight in his apartment... The gargoyle statue on the building next to him is looking down through his skylight. Uh-huh. I did not realize that from the opening of this of okay. this part of the story. Yeah. So apparently he's been being watched this whole time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, the twist was still appreciated. I like this little bit of dialogue uh, right before Carola bites him on the neck. You know, she's like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, he says... You say that like she's a vampire. She ripped his throat out. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit intense. That's true. But he's like, Carola, I loved you. And then at this point, she's fully transformed in this big gargoyle. Yeah. She's towering over him. And she says, and I loved you too. <laughs> but you broke your vow and that sealed our destiny. And it's like... <laughs> and bit yeah. him right on the throat and it kills him. Yeah. No grace whatsoever. <laughs> no grace. Like, yeah. Wow. But to me, like just that whole uh, reveal, I thought I like that reveal. I thought it was pretty cool. I did like the fact that oh my gosh, like she's been the gargoyle the whole time, even though I saw it coming. Like that was a good twist in the story. That was yeah. good. Once she now her actual transforming into a gargoyle. Can I go ahead and say yeah, go ahead. that that's that's a standout for me. Like there were good. Uh, graphics or what am I looking for special here? Special effects. Special effects, yeah. Like there were actually good special effects of her transforming, like mid-transformation into the gargoyle. But then when you actually see the gargoyle, as I alluded to earlier, they're ridiculous looking. Yeah. yeah. Like statue gargoyles. Okay, we were kids of the 90s. Do you, did you ever watch the gargoyle yeah. cartoon? Oh, yeah. Those gargoyles were so much better looking in animated form <laughs> than these gargoyles were. These were like, I mean, they look like they could have been on the set of the dinosaur show. Remember the dinosaur where the little baby would be like, not the mama, not the oh, mama. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, well, these were ridiculous gargoyles. I think, I agree. So you're going into setbacks now, but... You know, just to finish up that standout, I do think that transition scene was like, it had to eat up a right. lot of Right, the, the transition was great. Until but then the we... finished product, so you're saying that, that basically that gargoyle looked pretty silly, 
And I do remember us laughing out loud, especially yeah. when you see the two uh, kid gargoyles. Oh, yeah. The babies had to turn into... Well, and they're not really babies. They're like adolescent girls that they have yeah. at this point. But they yeah. turn into gargoyles, too. And they're just... Yeah. Mm, when we looked at know. it, it was kind of like Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. That kind of ridiculous level. Right. But Little Shop of Horrors is an outright comedy. It's a comedy. So you see it as ridiculous. Right. But I feel like the mood of the film was more of this, you know, it should be a very upsetting moment. It was like they were living in the same city where The Crow was filmed, right? Which right. I think was Detroit. Yeah. But, you know, it's a dark place, almost like Gotham City. Gotham city like everything's yeah. dark and grim. But then we have these ridiculous looking gargoyles just take you out of the moment. I just yeah. couldn't take it. It was unfortunate. You know, there's that whole adage that we've talked about where, you know, it's wise to keep the, the villain in the shadows, right? If you can't right. pay for a big budget, yeah, sure. keep him in the shadows, leave you guessing what it's going to look like. That's a John Carpenter thing, right? Keep right. the monster in the dark. Keep the monster hidden in the dark. I think now, that would have been very wise here. Yeah, they should have done that. I, I did enjoy the story a lot. I like the aspects of it. I do feel like the special effects kind of shot them in the foot. Yeah, yeah. And it's weird because they, they clearly had a special effects budget because when she's in that transformation period, you're like, oh, wow, like this is kind of a legit transformation happening. But then once you see the gargoyle revealed, it's like, oh, you didn't spend any money on the final costume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> All right. Well, we walked through the wraparound story and then the three segments of the film. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and talk through, before we get to our yays and nays, what was your favorite? What was your least favorite? Oh, my favorite was definitely the Egyptian story. The mm -hmm. you know, And I, I might have been biased because I saw that it was you know based on a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story. Um, I've never read any of his stuff other than the Sherlock tales, and I yeah. love Sherlock. Yeah. So I was probably a little biased anyhow, but I really felt like it was the best handled story. It had the best effects. Um, I was never taken out of the story by the special effects there. Yeah. So that was lot 249 was definitely my favorite yeah. out of the three. Right. I would agree with that. I felt like it was really strong. Mm -hmm. I felt like the last story was strong. Uh, the special effects really betrayed the, the yeah, narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the story and the twist had something going for it, but it mm -hmm. was the special effects, the yeah. visuals that kind of killed it. And then we already spoiled the least favorite for us is the, the cats. Yeah. The cat right. from hell, I the think is the hell. actual title of that story, <laughs> which is surprising. Cause that's a Stephen King story. Yeah. I would have expected it to be stronger. Yeah. Well, but again, I haven't read the story. We've only seen this visual representation of it. Yeah. So maybe we need to go well, find the Stephen King short story. Again, you know, it could have been handled differently. It could have been so much more. I think so. Yeah. It had potential. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of the, the common thread here with all of these. Like, mm -hmm. uh, they could have been more, you know. So is that kind of the catch-22 with an anthology? It's like, there's potential there, uh -huh. and you either nail it or it goes kind of horribly wrong for you because yeah. you, you just have that limited budget, that limited time for each story. Well... It can go at, great or it can go badly. I look at Black Sabbath. They were able to tell the phone conversation story really well. That's in true. In a short amount of time. Even the Vertilac, mm -hmm. you know, all of that was told really efficiently. 
You that's know, true. That's true. A really probably a big story that they it could was have a big made. Story, yeah. They could have made two hours, <clears throat> but they were able to do it pretty efficiently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just I kind of felt like it was a little mishandled. I don't know. Maybe you know at this point the cocaine had kind of really kicked <laughs> oh, <no>. in <laughs> the excesses of the eighties. You know, it's nineteen ninety at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what was going on? Who knows? But yeah, let's go ahead and jump into our final summations. Yay or nay, what say ye, Kim? Um, even though I did appreciate Lot 249 and the ancient Egyptian mummy story, I, it's a nay for me. Like, I, I could take it or leave it. You yeah. know? Like, it's fine, but I don't ever have to see it again. Yeah. I'm cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a neither here nor there movie for me, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's right in the middle, neutral. If you're a big creep show fan, uh-huh. I could see you wanting to jump in and watch this. Sure. And I do like anthology films, so like if you just want to watch a horror anthology film and kind of relive that late '80s, early '90s feel, sure, go for it. Yeah. You know, if you just watch the wraparound story, I liked it. I liked the first story. I liked the last story. Right, right. So realistically, I would say, yeah, I would say watch it if you want. But if you don't watch it, you're not going to be really missing out on it. No, whole. this is not a must-see for sure. No. I did enjoy the wraparound story. Has Deborah Harry been in any other? We'll, we'll have to check. Yeah, on that. we'll have to check that out. I don't know because that was interesting. That you know we have a rock star kind of making the highlight. framework for yeah. this for this whole anthology. So no, I I did like that, and uh, one reason why I picked it for us is because we've done other anthology films. Exactly, mostly from the nineteen sixties. Yeah. So you and I saw the uh, the French Dispatch. Oh, you that's know, true. Recent, you know, we've seen nineteen ninety. Now we've seen these nineteen sixties. We'll have to watch some things from the 80s and then something, you know, also very modern, like we talked about, maybe the Creep Show series. Right, right. But uh, I, I think it was good just in juxtaposition with some of the other things we've watched. We've mm-hmm. been pretty heavy into 1982, obviously. Yeah. The 60s and 1982, we've hit hard, right? We kind of hung out there for a while, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> some comments from our fans bring it on yak blah dad gum blah <laughs> what <laughs> commented great movie loved david johansson and william hickey in cat from hell <laughs> <laughs> so wow we just uh, went opposite on you there but that's awesome that you loved it yeah good cool. for you hp shovecraft said this film is a classic and a half okay big fan Dead City Drive-In, our friends over there, another podcast you'll have to check out, said, saw it when it came out and has been a favorite ever since. The director, John Harrison, worked extensively with Romero and actually wrote the music for Creepshow as well as Day of the Dead. Okay. He also appeared as Screwdriver Zombie in the original Dawn of the Dead. Harrison went on to direct the Dune miniseries on Sci-Fi, which we just watched recently with our kids, uh-huh. uh, which is cool. Uh, Romero and Stephen King both contributed to this movie as writers and were both used, along with writer Michael McDowell, writer of Beetlejuice, as selling points for the movie in its advertising. After all, Tales from the Dark Side, the television series, was created by Romero and his producing partner at Laurel Entertainment, Richard Rubenstein. (laughs) Tales from the Dark Side has been called the unofficial Creep Show 3. 
My goodness. So, um, yeah, if you're tired of our non-knowledge on these things, go check out Dead City Drive-In. They know what the heck they're talking about. Yeah. Lots of information there, but very good stuff. I think we touched on a lot of that, but good stuff. Mm -hmm. Schlock and Marathon said, it actually began life as Creepshow 3. The same team that did the OG Creepshow film made Tales from the Dark Side, the TV series, right afterward. They share insane DNA. Mm. Very true. Mm-hmm. An old but not obsolete said, Deborah Harry looks absolutely hot in that pic. Firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> she definitely has a like 90s suburbanite mom hotness about her. Yeah, yeah. She's very stunning. Yeah. Yes. Very nice. She looks great pretty much in any era, right? Yeah, come on. She's Deborah Harry. What are we watching next week? All right, so next week we are going back to 1963 and we will be watching The Birds. That's Ooh. right, the Alfred Hitchcock, The Birds. Very cool. Yeah, so I believe it's rated PG-13. Right now it's available on uh, Peacock to watch if you have Peacock streaming. And I, mean, I think you can still rent it on Amazon Prime. You can, yep. Yep, and if you don't know The Birds, the little blurb from IMDb says... A wealthy San Francisco socialite pursues a potential boyfriend to a small northern California town that slowly takes a turn for the bizarre when birds of all kinds suddenly begin to attack people. Cool. Yeah. Well, there you have it. So watch it. Check it out. Next week, we'll talk about it together. We'll talk about the birds. It's kind of an epic movie, so it's it's a big deal. Yeah. One we both seen. We have both seen and we both love. Yes. 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 Awesome. Well, have a great week, everyone. Enjoy your movies, guys. Peace out. Peace out. Peace out.